G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We had a, a nice little break from our usual format last week, Tim, when you got to have a, a lovely chat with Kerry Griffel, who hosts the Genesis Marks the Spot podcast, and that was a, a great conversation. Everyone should definitely check out her stuff. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Uh, but the week before that, we took a fascinating tour through ancient literature about Adam's son, Seth. And now we're going to find out what we can learn from Enosh. And we'll see how closely his story is tied with that of his son, Canaan. We're starting to make some progress through this genealogy. Anyway, let's get into this. We're back in Genesis 5 and reading from verse 9. And Enos lived 190 years and became the father of Canaan. And Enos lived after he became the father of Canaan 715 years and had sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos amounted to 905 years and he died. And Canaan lived 170 years and became the father of Malalil. And Canaan lived after he became the father of Malalil 740 years and had sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan amounted to 910 years and he died. So we're going to study two guys today, father and son. Yeah, I thought we'd do it that way because I want people to see the connection between the two and I kind of felt like if we separate them and if they're in episodes a week apart, then we don't get to see the interplay between the names, which is really important. This is building on significant biblical themes that we need to be picking up on throughout the entire scriptural narrative. That sounds interesting as always. So so what do you have to say about Enosh? Is he one of the, the good guys or not? Well, it'd be fair to say that Enosh was quite highly regarded, particularly in the Second Temple period and early church tradition. And I touched on that the other week, particularly how Philo held him in such high regard, owing to his view of humanity as the pinnacle of God's creation. And I mentioned the connection between the name of Enosh and humanity, which we also talked about back in chapter four last season. It's a very Greek mindset that we see in Philo, which we find at the very origin of Western thought and culture. And even though it might be more accurate to refer to the rise of the Greek Empire as the last ancient Near Eastern civilization, most people recognize it as the origin of the West. And you see that nowhere more clearly than in the way that Greek authors displayed this tendency to aggrandize humankind in the story of God. That's something that we have to watch out for in our own lives as we consider the scriptures. And as I mentioned earlier, when we talked about Enosh back in season four of the podcast, it's very common to see this false equivocation between the name of Enosh and the concept of man as the human species rather than the human condition. And we looked at these scriptures before, but I'm going to read them again just to show where this is coming from. Here's 2 Samuel 12, verse 15 from the ESV. Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. And this is Isaiah 17, verse 11. Though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And later in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 15, Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. And last time I read these out, Chris, I remember you making the observation that not one of those passages uses the word man in the translation. 
you'd think that people would stop using that word as an equivalent for man, given that it's not used that way in the Bible. It's like, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Yeah, that's a pet peeve of mine. In every one of these examples, we have the word from which the name Enosh is derived, and we're talking about wretchedness, sickness, depravity, and mortality. There's this idea of being incurable and hopeless. This isn't a glowing endorsement of the human species. Philo likes to wax on about how great humanity is because he's all about this Greek philosophy where mankind is the pinnacle of all God's creations by virtue of his intelligence. Not like Philo, but this is where he's wrong. We've read Genesis 1 and 2. We know the purpose of humanity. God made us to serve the world, not the world to serve us. Exactly. Back when we were looking at this in Season 4, remember that we were in the middle of what we called the archetypal narrative of humanity, which spoke of Adam as the representative of all of us and everything that proceeded from him to be an image of what comes naturally from the heart of man. And this is part of that picture. So according to that framework, this man, Enos, is the natural product of what comes from the fall of Adam. Our hopelessly wretched state is intrinsic to humankind on that basis. The natural survival mechanism that we call self-preservation has blown out in Adam into sinful desire, which has shown its full expression partly in his firstborn son, Cain, but again in the condition of his grandson, Enos. It's actually the intelligence of Adam that condemns him, so the boasting of Philo and of the Western world becomes comical, even laughable, in light of that picture. But now, we're in Genesis 5, and we're reading a very real genealogy presented to give us that connective material, stretching from Adam to Noah. We're moving briefly, briefly, out of the archetypal narrative and into a historical one. And yet the scripture is not without lessons for us in this simple genealogy. Because now we've learned that what comes from this weak, corrupted, and desperately wretched example of a man is his son, Canaan. You might have it written as Kenan in your Bible. This is another one of those examples where the English translation of the Septuagint is actually providing a clearer picture of the original Hebrew. Because if you go back to Hebrew, you're going to find a closer connection to the spelling that we would read as Canaan. And that's important for us as English readers because it has the desired effect which it should have when you read it in Hebrew and that is to connect the promised land, the place where God desired to set his dwelling, with the imperfect, impure, polluted, defiled and desecrated condition of mortal man. So, what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? It means that the land of Canaan and everything that's associated with that land, and we should be thinking here about the giant clans too, has come from the depraved state of humanity. It also means that the redemptive plan of God that this whole thing is working towards and which will culminate in this immediate context with Noah must work through Canaan. It must come through the wretchedness and incurable evil of humanity seen in Enos. I hear what you're saying, but I also think it sounds like Genesis 5 must be pointing beyond Noah towards some kind of messianic figure like Jesus. Now, you might say to me, it sounds like Genesis 5 must be pointing towards some kind of messianic figure, and the reality is that there are lots of people who think so, but that's a late interpretation. And in this case, it works, although we have to remember to keep ourselves grounded in the original context. This is going to be one of those messages that contributes to a theme that helps to develop the overall messianic expectation, but it's not an explicit reference to Christ. I am aware of a common interpretation of this which was widely promoted in recent years by the late Dr. Chuck Missler. Now, those of you who have read the front matter of my book will be aware that I gave acknowledgement to Dr. Missler as being one of the inspirations behind me getting into all this research in the first place. 
I had been following Chuck for years and I still love his work. But once again, just like I love Philo, even when he's wrong, I also love Chuck Missler even when he's wrong. Unfortunately, he never did provide evidence of where he got the message that he claimed Genesis 5 is presenting in the names of the patriarchs. This is what I'm talking about in case you weren't aware of this one. The theory goes that if you take the 10 names listed in Genesis 5 and use the meaning of each of the names, you can construct ascendance, which essentially presents the gospel of Jesus Christ. Obviously, if you're going to do that, then you have to have some idea of what the names mean. We have the 10 names from Adam through Noah, and according to Dr. Missler, this is what they mean. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Canaan means sorrow. Mahalalel means the blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death will bring. Lamech means despairing. And Noah means comfort. So according to what Dr. Missler has presented, the result of translating those 10 names is something like the following sentence. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching and his death shall bring the despairing comfort. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? It sounds really great. But you know what I'm going to say already, don't you? Some of these definitions of the names of the patriarchs are fairly accurate. And some of them just seem to be completely made up because we really don't have any way to show how you can arrive at those definitions legitimately. Which is a shame. Uh, are you sure that's not right? Because it would be really cool if it was. Yeah, it would. The first three names are understandable. We've already talked about those names in great detail, and you can see how you could legitimately interpret those names as shown in that example. Unfortunately, that's the point at which the wheels fall off. We'll talk more about this over the next few weeks, but... There's quite simply no way that you could legitimately arrive at something like sorrow from the name Canaan. And you're going to have similar trouble with other names like Enoch and Lamech. Arriving at those conclusions, you really haven't got a leg to stand on. We also have to consider the issue that the text cannot mean what it didn't originally mean. So you can't have a story that points to Jesus in such explicit terms because nobody at the time of writing had any idea about all that stuff. And you can argue divine inspiration if you like, but I want to remind you that ordinary human authors wrote these things. And if it didn't make sense to them at the time, it wouldn't have been preserved in scripture. That's just not how literature works. Now, I won't accuse Dr. Missler of being misleading because without any kind of source material to show the derivation of those definitions, I really can't demonstrate the intent behind presenting them as such. But I would have thought that if those definitions really were able to be derived from the names, then we should be able to see some examples of biblical usage. Yeah, I think I see what you mean. It's fair enough in some cases. We just talked about Enosh and the way that we arrive at a definition of his name based on usage of similar terminology in a variety of biblical contexts. And it would be fair to say that we could interpret his name as meaning something like mortal. But some of these other ones, you really can't demonstrate how you arrive at those conclusions. As an example, you've got names like Cain and Lamech. They don't even appear as proper names anywhere in the ancient Near East, either before or during the biblical period, except for where the Bible features them. And as we learned in the last season of the podcast, those names are being used in Scripture to teach us something rather than to record historically accurate names of individuals. Unfortunately, there are a great many people out there in the world of Christian ministry who are perpetuating the idea of the inspiration of the Scriptures as being some kind of mystical, supernatural downloading of information from the future into the mind of the scriptural authors. I love the way that Dr. Heiser used to call it the X-Files view of inspiration. 
And when you look at someone like Dr. Missler, and again, I don't want to put the guy down because he's taught me so much, but you see that kind of thing coming through in some of his material. This interpretation of Genesis 5 is one of those examples, and there are other things like his subscription to the idea of Bible codes and that kind of thing. But as I said, the wheels fall off the cart when we get to this interpretation of the name of Canaan. Canaan, as the sound suggests, is derived from the same root as Cain, and we talked before about how the name of Cain means something like acquisition. Canaan, building on that name, is sometimes thought of as the little Cain. That last syllable on the end is typically interpreted as indicating a diminutive form of the name. And back in season four, we talked about how the name Cain actually doesn't have any attestation whatsoever in the ancient Near East, which tells us that the name Canaan as a derivative of Cain is also a product of the biblical author's desire to convey a message rather than as simple historical fact from the record books. And that doesn't mean that this person didn't really exist. It just means that the name provided for this individual may not have actually been their real name. Names in scripture are often functional, and they're chosen because the name helps to convey a message. The name has a function in the text. And as I say quite often, we have to remember that we're reading literature, and the point of a work of literature is to convey a particular message. And since that is the function of the inspiration of scripture, rather than simply record keeping, we have to keep in mind that it does no harm to a doctrine of inerrancy or inspiration to keep in mind that the point being communicated is more important than historical figure's actual name. Biblical authors are not lying when they give you information designed to get a point across rather than being designed to scientifically represent facts as accurately as possible. And being familiar with Genesis 5, you'll know that there are a couple of names in Genesis 4 that make another appearance in Genesis 5, which tells us that if the author wanted to use the same name and just talk about another person named Cain, he wouldn't have a problem in doing so. But he doesn't. Instead, he's got another idea to convey and he's building on the first one. So this isn't the reintroduction of Cain into the story as some have proposed. This isn't necessarily a development of everything associated with Cain that we learned from his story. It sounds like one of uh, the major issues that we're going to have to deal with as we go through Genesis 5 is working out whether these characters are being presented in positive or negative situations. Are we looking at positive characters who have the same name as the negative characters we saw previously? Or are these completely different views on the same people? Or do we need to hold both ideas in tension against one another? Yeah, that's something we're going to have to consider even in situations where we don't have similar names overlapping from the previous chapter. In Genesis 4, Enosh is the desperately wicked and hopelessly incurable state of humanity in its mortality and frailty and weakness. Do we need to maintain that view of him here in the genealogy from Adam to Noah? Or are we free to see his name functioning differently in a different narrative? Are these biblical characters set in stone and unable to escape the pronouncement of destiny expressed in their names? Or can they find redemption? For Enos and Canaan, presented here in the context of a genealogy, which reaches toward the redemption of humankind beyond the waters of the flood, it would seem that the author sees no need to attempt to present these characters with any particular moral value. But if we are to respect the context of the narrative, we must also endeavour to see the good in these characters, whose names would otherwise suggest the corruption and idolatry associated with those names elsewhere. Although the character of Enos was impugned in Genesis 4 on the basis of the negative connotation of the verb halal, which at a surface reading simply means to begin, but in the context of the primeval history is consistently viewed negatively as corruption or defilement, we have no evidence of such negativity here in Genesis 5. We shouldn't necessarily view that as a corrective to the Genesis 4 narrative because we're now in a different situation and in a sub-narrative within the broader arc of the primeval history, 
which demands its own interpretation. And I think that perhaps what the context requires of us is some pity on this man and perhaps a recognition that it could just as easily be you or me in his situation. After all, this is the line of redemption from Adam to Noah. And turning our attention to Canaan again, we have to see him in objective terms rather than tarnish him with the mark of Cain, so to speak. Canaan reminds us that a bad thing may defile a good place or a good person for that matter, but it can still be redeemed. Coming back to the context of the canonical primeval history, we have to remember the familiarity that the people of Israel had, in cultural terms, with their history in the land of Canaan prior to the exile. They remember Joshua. They remember King David. They remember that purifying the land paved the way for God to establish his presence in the place that he'd chosen. Perhaps Enos finds redemption through Canaan. And we're going to build on that more next week as we consider the son of Canaan. But we have to be careful that we don't take this too far and start talking at this point about Jerusalem. Canaan is one thing, but it's too early to put such a fine point on Jewish orthodoxy because we're still at a point in the narrative about which the different translations and their associated traditions still agree. And that's not going to be the case as we get to the second half of Genesis 5. But now the point is made that it's Canaan who is the focus, because if we're talking about Jerusalem, then we would have a name suggestive of that point. As I was saying a minute ago, these names are functional. We don't see a name like Salem or something like that here. We're not talking about the temple. The name is Canaan and the point is Canaan and you're only getting the point if you're hearing the text and not just looking at your translation. It's nothing new to this audience if you've been following me for a while, but you should know by now that if you're not hearing the Hebrew text, then you're just not hearing scripture. If you can read Genesis 5 and not be reminded of the place in which God had promised to establish his name, then you're just not getting it. So we can see that the original intent of the author was not to precisely pinpoint Jerusalem as the central point of Orthodox Israelite worship, although that did become a focus much later. And the proof that early interpreters did not see Jerusalem in focus is seen in the Samaritan Pentateuch, which offers no objection here, despite the later chronological revisions in the second part of this genealogy. So that should remind us to keep our focus squarely on the promised land as the place in which God would show them where he would establish his name. And the fact that this comes through Enosh is deeply significant theologically because he is already suggesting a reversal of the situation in the Garden of Eden. When God gave the breath of life to Adam, he was imparting his spirit to his image bearer. He literally gave himself a place to dwell within the man. And now we come to Genesis 5 and find that the man is going to lead us to the place where God will establish his name. Remembering our late context for the final form of this text, we should be hearing the words of the prophets and the promise of God to restore his dwelling among his people, couched in a rebuke that everything that made the promised land so terrible and scary and dangerous came from the hearts of the people, not from the God who gave them the covenant. So whatever Canaan represents, we cannot separate it from its origin in the human condition. When Chuck Misler spoke of Canaan as meaning sorrow, my guess is that he got there not by looking at this man, Canaan, but the place, the land called Canaan, because the root behind that name means something like to be humbled or brought low, the low-lying land between the mountains and the sea. I guess you could stretch that idea of being low to something like sorrow. I hate to say it, but that's really drawing a long bow there. I know that I often talk about the way that words sound, and I was just talking about that a moment ago with the association of the sound between the man, Canaan, and the land, Canaan. Those kinds of connections are often legitimate, but they do not rely on importing the meaning of the other word into the present situation. Because if you mean to say one word, then you just use it. You don't say something else unless you're implying that both meanings are intended. And the problem with interpreting this name as sorrow comes from the fact that you have to take too many interpretive steps to get there. That's not the idea that's going to come to mind when the listening audience hears that name. 
So what do you think would come to the mind of an audience hearing this name and the text? Bird nests. What? Bird nests? Where would you get that from? The word for bird nest comes from the very same root that's found at the core of this name, Canaan, in Genesis 5. So the connection with the land of Canaan is not derived from the meaning of the name of the place called Canaan. It's derived from the fact that the name Canaan, as expressed in Genesis 5, means something to its audience that connects it to their home in Canaan, what the land represents. And it represents a secure place to call home. It represents a place of safety, a place where if you were coming in from the outside, you might find something valuable to treasure or if you're an enemy to plunder. Let's look at some examples. This is Numbers chapter 24, verse 21, again from the ESV. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. That's an interesting one there because the name of the Kenite is actually pronounced Kane. So it's a play on the nest pronounced as Cain. Uh, again, Deuteronomy 22 verse 6. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. So again, we have a nest with the idea of family and security and also the idea that the nest contains something of value. From Psalms 84 verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And here again, we have ideas of home and family and children associated with nests. Proverbs 27 verse 8 says, Like a bird that strays from its nest is a man who strays from his home. This proverb talks about home as a place of security and identity, which you can easily lose if you don't stay in the place where you belong. And once again, it's spoken of as a nest. Isaiah 10 verse 14, my hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing, or opened the mouth, or chirped. Isaiah records the boasting of the king of Assyria, who came and took whatever he wanted from the land. And again, Isaiah 16 verse 2, like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Now, the last couple of references from the Minor Prophets talk about the nest as a place of refuge and safety, even tying it in with some kind of great power to maintain that safety. This is Obadiah chapter 1, verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And Habakkuk 2, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. So there you go, there's a whole heap of different examples of the use of a bird's nest, and the root behind that word is the same one that forms the basis of this name, Canaan. That's where we derive the meaning of the name. So who is Canaan? He's the little nest. He's the place of refuge and safety. He's the place where the greatest treasure can be found within. And this comes back to what we were talking about earlier, in the place where God would set his dwelling and cause his name to rest. How can we not read that and think about his father Enos, whom we've talked about already and whose name reminds us of the human condition. That association might not have made sense in any context prior to that of the biblical prophets, but it speaks loud and clear to us today. God wants to be with us despite our wretchedness and incurable frailty. He wants to dwell among us in spite of our sin. He wants to restore our function and our status as bearers of his image and his name. We're going to talk more about that next week. There was another use of that word for nests. Ooh, what was it? Oh, I didn't read it out loud because it's found in Genesis 6. Does that mean it has something to do with the giants? Yeah, we'll get there when we get there. But for now, I think it's time to wrap it up. Oh, man. Well, 
Need to get some giants in somewhere. Let's do some Q&A. That's a good idea. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us in the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Speaking of Genesis 6, we have a question from a guy whose name is Noah. Oh, is he asking about whether or not the depictions of two male lions entering the ark in popular children's Sunday school books are secretly promoting the gay agenda? Uh, no. I always imagine that if we got a question from Noah, that would be it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, this question from Noah is actually about temples and giants. Noah says, saw this thing on my feed the other day and found it interesting. It's an ancient Hittite temple modelled similarly to Solomon's temple. It also has giant footprints carved into the rock with a 30-foot span between steps. The math would make this being 65 feet tall. I am of the belief that the ancient giants were between 6 to 9 feet tall. What would be the purpose of creating these footprints so exceedingly big? Was this a way for the people of the city to symbolically brag and be like, oh, yeah, well, look at the size of my gods feet. I'm curious as to how, if true, its layout design resembles Solomon's temple while also predating it. All right. Well, that certainly is an interesting question, and I appreciate the attempt at euphemism there, even if nobody else got that. We're going to talk about that more later, but as for now, let's start with temples. And I guess the first thing to ask is, what makes a temple a temple? For most buildings, we should be able to tell what they are by looking at particular features, and the features are going to have a lot to do with the function of the building. As an example, if you're looking for a shop to buy your groceries, you're probably not going to accidentally walk into a local government office. You wouldn't walk into a school and ask the receptionist, is this the fire department? Buildings generally have distinctive features that help you identify the purpose and function of the place and tell you a bit about what goes on there. And that might seem kind of obvious, but I feel like I have to say that to make the point because just because a temple looks like a temple, that doesn't mean that it was copied or plagiarised off some other temple that also looks like a temple. We have a tendency to read the Bible and see the instructions for building the temple and think to ourselves, well, since the instructions are laid out here, this must be a unique building unlike anything else. And because it's a temple devoted to our God and our God is unique and special, then this temple must be one of a kind. But we really don't have any logical basis for that assumption. The fact is that there were lots of temples in the area of the land of Canaan and surrounds that shared very common design features. And some of the temples we know about, for example, at Tyre at Hazor and Rash Shamra had a high degree of similarity to the temple that Solomon commissioned for Yahweh. The temple at Ain Dara, which is the one that Noah is talking about in his question, wouldn't have been much different. The Phoenicians were well known for their craftsmanship with regard to temples. Part of that was owing to their access to resources like cedarwood from Lebanon. And that's made very clear in the Bible where we find that King Solomon actually took advantage of a commercial relationship with the king of Tyre in order to get the stuff for the temple. And that even included bringing in a Phoenician master craftsman to oversee the work. I should probably point out, too, that the Hittites were the predecessors to uh, what became the uh, Phoenicians later on. So there's a bit of cultural overlap there. So a Hittite temple is going to be very similar to a Phoenician temple, which is going to be very similar to a Canaanite temple, and it's going to be very similar to an Israelite temple. Anyway... It turns out that if you get a master craftsman from a region north of Israel to build a temple using materials from the land north of Israel, then you're going to end up with a temple that very much resembles those temples that you find north of Israel. And there's a great deal of cultural overlap, so it's only natural that you'd expect to find common design features, including things like wood panelling on the interior, 
lots of gold and precious stones and decorations that bring to mind the idea of some idyllic garden paradise. You're also going to find things like cherubim and other mythical creatures. Again, we don't call that plagiarism. That's just a cultural norm. I might mention that the Temple of Baal did actually deviate from the norm a little bit because he had his temple built without windows. Turns out he was terrified that the sea might come in and flood him out. But anyway, as far as the resemblance of Solomon's temple to other temples found in the region is concerned, I think that it's perfectly natural to see those resemblances. And we really don't need to make anything of them. You don't walk into a library and stop and look around and think, wait a minute, hang on a second, this library looks way too much like a library that I saw somewhere else, so there must be something fishy going on. No, that's just what a library looks like, being a library. Temples are going to have particular imagery, particular furniture, particular design features that facilitate the worship of a god because that's what they're for. So there's no surprises there. But what about those giant footprints? You're not about to tell me that's a normal thing you find at temples, right? Well, actually... What? Are you serious? Yeah, absolutely. You're telling me that giant footprints are a normal thing at temples? Well, not all temples, but yeah, they're actually fairly well known at all kinds of religious sites. But since I get a lot of criticism from people who don't like me using $4 words, I'm not going to say petrosomatic lifts. Let's just call them impressions. <laughs> Glad you didn't say that other thing. That actually sounds like a $6 word. And the ancient Near East is no exception. Actually, you find this stuff, even in Israel, you find this in Christian churches in Israel. You're kidding. It gets better. Guess whose footprints you can find impressed in stone at the Chapel of the Ascension in Jerusalem? Oh, I know. Oh, yeah. Jesus. What? Yeah, this kind of thing happens all over the place, not just in the ancient Near East. You can find this stuff all over the world. I'm talking even as far as Southeast Asia. You can find the footprints of Buddha in China and an impression in stone of the Virgin Mary's boobs in Wales. And what's going on here is connected directly to the purpose of temples. But before I talk about that, I want to talk about men's toilet graffiti. Oh, of course you do. But come on, Tim, what are you doing now? I can't believe you just said boobs on our show. And now this? All the little children that are listening are like laughing their heads off right now. You ever go out in public somewhere and you go to the men's and you find that somebody has drawn a picture of the male organ on the wall? Oh, my goodness. You are aware that children listen to this podcast, right? Weren't we just talking about Jesus? So it, it turns out that the ancient pastime of drawing phalluses goes way, way back. And in ancient Roman times, it was actually used as a sign that pointed the way toward the local brothel. So you didn't ask, which way is it to the gentleman's club? You literally just followed your penis. And wherever you found one carved into the wall or on the pavement, you just kept going in the direction uh, indicated, shall we say. And there you go. Not sure, but this may prove that Rule 34 did, in fact, predate the internet. So you're telling me that the arrow that points to the men's restroom is a hand. So anyway, it turns out that if you wanted to mark the way that you would take to go to the place where your god resides, namely his temple, you would simply follow the footsteps of your god. And in the ancient world, it was widely thought that the gods were really big. So you needed to have these big footprints heading in the direction of the temple. And that's what you don't see as a point of difference with regard to the temple of Yahweh. Right. Okay. So we're not talking about phalluses anymore. Right. 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 Yeah, this isn't one of those euphemisms like, you know, the king must be covering his feet. Uh, we are actually talking about real feet. This is just evidence of an ancient tradition where the footsteps of the gods were carved in various places in order to show where you would go to find the place of worship. And the idea of the gods being really big is what led to the idea of these big footprints. You said these footprints are carved, so they're not real footprints. Yeah, that's right. They're not real footprints, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily artificial. 
Sometimes people just found a depression in the rock that had the appearance of a footprint, and they'd make that association. Like when you look at a rock and it looks like it has a face. So just to be clear, finding rocks that resemble body parts or footprints or things of that nature does not constitute evidence of giants any more than finding a really big dong scribbled on the toilet door. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. But what about the footprints of Jesus that you talked about? What's, what's the go there? Uh, again, this goes back to the tradition of connecting the presence and the worship of deity with a building designed for worship. I'm quite sure that at the moment of the ascension of Christ, he wasn't actually just fortuitously standing in wet cement at the time. Those aren't his real footprints. Just imagine. And as they watched, he was taken up into heaven while the holy cement dripped from his toes. Now, but th- that doesn't mean that whoever made those footprints is trying to be misleading or deceptive. This isn't like every person you find on a street corner in Jerusalem selling pieces of the real cross of Christ, at least from a modern materialist perspective. But then again, maybe it is. According to ancient worldview and from the ritual perspective that we would expect to find in that worldview, what makes a thing the genuine article is less about its material substance and more about its function. In other words, a piece of wood is the cross of Christ, and a piece of stone may be the footprint of Christ if it is doing the thing that brings to mind that reality. If that footprint brings to mind the ascension of Christ and causes you to contemplate it and meditate on it, then from the functional perspective, that's what it is. It brings you from an eternal perspective to the time and place where that thing is actually happening now. When you witness the footprints of Christ at the Chapel of the Ascension, you're a witness to the event in real time. So it doesn't have to be real to be genuine. If it really does the thing, then it is being that thing. This is about participation. The same model applies for us when we refer to the church as the body of Christ. When we do what Christ would do, we're being his body in the world. We are his feet. And like the early church in Jerusalem, we share the same hope that one day we too will be raised to incorruptible glory in the likeness of Christ. It's beautiful. And we're going to wrap it up at that point. And we'll be back next week to talk about the next link in the genealogical chain of Genesis 5. And as always, we'll be back to tackle more of your giant questions. We'll see you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. G'day, folks, and welcome. <coughs> yeah, yeah, I thought that that one uh, raised a few eyebrows. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if you know any geeks besides me that collect this kind of stuff. Oh, you are my favourite geek. I've got this uh, the toy affair, so I'm still on the waiting list. I'm just going to listen to. Uh, I assume a 
persona as a vendor of uh, exotic goods? Yes, that'll be my Masters of the Universe name. I am vendor, uh, <laughs> <laughs> purveyor of geekery. Um, <laughs> yeah, we used chat GPT at work a while ago when we were all getting into it because, like, the joke with Masters of the Universe stuff, you just put, like, or on the end of the name. Oh, yeah. So we put in my name and said a bit about me and said, you know, imagine me as like a Master of the Universe character. And it said, like, oh, you are Bathor, Master of the Aquatic Arts, and like came up <laughs> with all these list of powers and stuff. And it was like, so it was like six paragraphs and stuff. That's <laughs> was very impressed. Oh, oh that's crazy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I should try that. Chat GPT is great. Um, so, yeah, I was talking to the D&D guy about, yeah, because you can use it for like, for your writing and stuff. Probably be boring if I did it. Like, you know, I'm a forklift operator. They'd probably just call me like Forco or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you just have like two like prongs for hands. Yeah. Behold the palette of power. <laughs> you know, you can put in your recent, uh, it'll probably create like the, the BMX with your trusty steed and it turned against you and broke your arm or something. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's to your arch enemy it also has giant footprints carved into the rock with a 30 feet it also has a giant it also has giant footprints carved into the rock the 30 30 <laughs> <laughs>